I'm going to be honest uh, right off the bat. I was hoping the first time that I got on the stage would be with my guitar. Um, I started playing in January, and I'm, I'm really good. Um, if you remember, Andrew preached a, a sermon a while back, and he, it was about gifts. And he said, one of the ways you know if you have a gift, others will validate, you know, validate that. You know, things like, hey, you're good at this. Maybe you should try you know, this or that. So with that in mind, I started you know, thinking of some of the feedback that I've received from uh, my guitar playing uh, from my family. So here are some of them. Do you mind doing that outside? <laughs> Daddy, my ears are sad. Please stop following me with that. Seriously, I can't right now. And why do you have to be so close to my head? So um, it looks like I'm going to be here for the foreseeable future, but I'll, I'll definitely keep you posted if it, uh, if it gets any better. So uh, good news, bad news. Uh, bad news is this is only the third time I've ever preached but the good news is my average time has been about 17 minutes. So if you have any plans after, to, you know, after the service, you are in zero danger of, uh, of running late for that. So I'm going to start off with, um, I think we all have our, our favorite dead old guys that we like, and I've got one too, Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to start out with a story of his that I think is going to um, play in well with what we're going to talk about this morning. So it says, a great English prince went to visit a famous king of Spain. The prince was taken down to the galleys to see the men who were chained to the oars and doomed to be slaves for life. The king of Spain promised in honor of the prince's visit that he would set free any one of these men that the prince might choose. So the prince went to one prisoner and said, my poor fellow, I'm sorry to see you in this plight. How came you here? Uh, Sire, he answered, false witness gave evidence against me and I'm suffering wrongly. I indeed said the prince, and he passed to the next man. My poor fellow, I'm sorry to see you here. How did it happen? Sire, I certainly did wrong, but not to any great extent. I ought not be here. Indeed, said the prince, and he went on to others who told him similar tales, and at last he came to one prisoner who said, Sire, I'm often thankful that I'm here, for I'm sorry to own that if I had received my due, I should have been executed. I'm certainly guilty of all that was laid to my charge, and my severest punishment is just. The prince replied wittily to him, It's a pity that such a guilty wretch as you should be chained among these innocent men, and therefore I will set you free. And I think this is an excellent example of the work that Christ does for us. We're undeserving, but even in our broken state, he gives us hope. And by recognizing our sin, our guilt, and our shortcomings before him, we can achieve the freedom and the peace that only he can provide. All right, so today we're going to be in the book of John, in particular chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, the adulterous woman. Um, John is a little bit different than the other gospels. While, while the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also known as the synoptic gospels, focus more on the actions of Jesus, John takes a closer look at Jesus as a person. And though the target audience of his letter is not known, it can be assumed that since he was writing in Ephesus, the Jews and the Gentiles there were at least very, at least part of that audience. So during this time, many of the Jews were still connected with the sacrificial system and with the temple. So with the temple being destroyed in AD 70, it likely had a lot of them in disarray and, and was further the cause for John needing to write this because they needed it. They, they needed to know that their salvation 
did not depend on a sacrifice inside of a temple because one had come to be the final sacrifice. And that temple was no longer needed because that temple now resided in them. So again, if you'd like to follow along, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left and the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. So let's go back to the sin confronted here. The situation unfolds as Jesus is teaching in the temple. The Pharisees and the scribes bring him this woman who's been accused of adultery. And a quick note about the Pharisees and the scribes. So the scribes were those that had knowledge of the law. They could draft legal documents, contracts for marriage, divorces, loans, mortgages, the sale of land, all of that. Every village usually had a scribe. And I've read that these scribes were so meticulous that when they copied documents, they would count individual letters, no matter how many, how many pages, and then compare them to the copy to make sure that they had it right. Whereas the Pharisees, most of us know about them. They were members of a party that, that did believe in resurrection and, and following legal traditions, though, that weren't ascribed to the Bible, but ascribed to the traditions of the fathers, so they're man-made. Essentially, these scribes and Pharisees were like the dream team of the guys you were not going to hang out with on Friday night. Um, so again, according to the Pharisees, not only was she accused of it, she was caught in the very act. And, now, and they're asking Jesus what to do. Now think about this. How do you catch someone in the very act with more than one witness if this wasn't a setup? And where was the man? The Mosaic law stated that the, the man should have been there as well. He should have been subject to the same punishment as her. And of course, they're not asking this because they genuinely need an answer. They're asking this so they could have one more charge to bring against him. And, and by all accounts, what a trap. I mean, what a trap they have laid for him. Because if, if he agrees that, that she should be executed, he's going to break Roman law. For at the time, Roman law stated Jews could not execute their own. But if he says, no, you know, let her go, he's guilty of breaking the Mosaic law. So, so what does he do? He kneels down. He writes in the sand, and then he states, Let he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And at that point, he stoops and, and begins to write on the ground a second time. So looking at this, in the literal sense, I think we see the brutality of it. We see the, the, the wrong way sin is confronted in this passage. And I don't think you need me to preach about it to convince you that what we're seeing here 
is wrong on behalf of the Pharisees and the scribes. And, and we know it's wrong because, I mean, the brutality of it. The casting stones in this case is literal. You know, the Pharisees wish to stone this woman to death. And further, the shaming and the stoning of this woman weren't even the focus of their show. It was Jesus they were after, and they were just using this woman as really nothing but a pawn in their game. And now, let me explain stoning during this time. At this time, when somebody was stoned, the accuser or, or the victim was the one that usually initiated the process. The condemned was half buried to render them immobile, blindfolded, and then the accuser or the victim spit upon the condemned and then followed it by casting the first stone. And once that stone was thrown, then everybody else could join in until the execution was complete. Figuratively, how often have we seen this? How often have we seen these accusers? I think, more importantly, how often have we been one of these accusers? How often have we stood there with our stones, you know, ready to cast the first one? And I think whether conscious of it or not, there's times when we have all been blinded by our own self-righteousness. And it can be very embarrassing to be called out on it. Even when it's lovingly called out, as we're taught to do, it can be painful to have your sins made known. Um, I think sometimes with age, we seem to, to temper kind of our fiery attitudes and maybe our pensions for zeal. But that particular sin, that self-righteousness, is one that I can see that continues uh, through us to make, to make grand appearances. I, I've often heard it said that the sin that we hate the most in someone is the sin that we're most guilty of ourselves. And, and I'm very much uh, guilty of this. I used to work with a guy, and um, I was an A1 expert in his sins. This was five years ago, so statute of limitations is now up. But, um, you know, I would come home, and I would talk to my wife about him. Like, he did this, he did that. And it was all based on pride and arrogance. I think I referred to him as a peacock at one point on how he, you know, strutted around the office until she... She lovingly confronted it, and she said, do you think that maybe the reason that you go after this guy every night you come home is because maybe you're struggling with that sin as well? And she was right, and that's why she's not here today. I wouldn't let her, no, she's on the way back from a trip, but, um, but she was absolutely right. And, and how often do we see this in society today? We are so quick to condemn. We're quick to boycott. We're quick to voice our opinions especially in social media. We seem to have found our voice strong and loud with the sides that we've taken. We've been moved to action. We, we will call the other side evil. And we'll call the other side liars. We'll hang on to literally anything we can find on the internet that supports our position and, and post it on social media like some sort of battle flag. And if we're, if we're not so compelled to do that, even worse, we'll take it, we'll fight a, essentially kind of a proxy war through likes and shares, and you've all seen it, you know, um, just leaving this out there, which is usually followed by some sort of political meme on whatever side you happen to be on. Um, and unfortunately, I believe we are all guilty of it, myself included. However, I think the most painful example of this is how at times we use the word of God to justify our position. We will throw around the, his word, his name, so carelessly with no reverence to him. We will slight our very creator because we want to be right. 
and we want to be justified, and we want what we deserve. Is this how Jesus, though, treated it? Is, I don't think so. I don't think this is the example that he showed for us. And what do we actually deserve? Because I think what we deserve isn't what we think it is. And I want to be really clear here. What we deserve is the wrath of God. We all deserve the wrath of God. We deserve an eternity apart from our creator, but because of him, we're not condemned. We're not going to be brought forward in our guilt and shame as this woman was, but we're going to be brought forward into the arms of Jesus Christ because of our belief in him. Now, Tim Keller, um, I'm, a, I'm a fan, um, he, he brought this point up a couple weeks ago, and, and, and it was really, really good. He said, you know, Jesus isn't on the right hand of the Father begging for mercy on our behalf. You know, he's not up there saying, hey, Lord, J- Jay did it again. Yep, just like yesterday. Mm-hmm, you know, um, but could you just give him one more chance? No, you know what he's doing? He's asking for justice. He's saying, yes, Father, Jay did it again. Yep, just like yesterday. But, but Father, that, that debt's been paid, and it would be wrong to receive two payments. So moving forward, the difference in which the Pharisees confront the sin in in this passage and the way Jesus does, obviously completely different. What did they seek to do? They sought to shame, to humiliate, and to execute. And this is telling. They were quick in their actions. Now, Now look at Jesus. What does he do first? He takes a knee. And I think this verse is telling because instead of being quick to defend her, or better yet, to defend himself, the first thing he does is takes a knee. And I think we, we can learn from this, and I think we should learn from this, and I think we need to emulate this attitude. Listen, her sin was not in question, because even though this was, this was a trap, she was by all accounts guilty. But again, Jesus is not quick to speak. And this, is, this beautiful act is something that only he could pull off. I think... Confronting sin the right way has the ultimate goal of restoring the person. The goal is not to shame, not to embarrass, and not to humiliate into submission. Now think about it, think about this, if we were to live life this way according to what he showed us. Imagine if we confronted sin as he does in these verses. Maybe if before we spoke, we considered the other person's point of view. Imagine if we gave somebody the benefit of the doubt before resorting to attacking them. What if we were really slow to anger? Imagine if we we as Christians were known for the love that we show to all of God's children versus the stand that we take against them. Imagine if we really used Christ as our example. So in 1678, John Bunyan, who was a Puritan, wrote a book that some of you may know, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a Christian allegory, uh, meaning it can be read on two different levels. By the way, when um, last week when Edwin was preaching about Francis Chan and he was grateful that he didn't say Jackie Chan, me and John Bunyan, I've been wanting to call that man Paul Bunyan all week. And a, a folk hero and a Puritan are not going to relate well together, so I want to Thank the Lord for letting me get through that piece. Um, So going forward, the main character in this book is a man named Christian 
who was initially carrying this large burden, and he begins a journey to the celestial city. And what this book is, it's a, it follows the life that we follow from our salvation all the way forward. Anyway, at one point, he enters this dusty room. They call it a parlor. And there's a man, there's a man in this room with a broom trying to sweep it, but what happens when you try to sweep dry dust? It, it makes it worse. So a young lady arrives and sprinkles water on the floor and then cleans it. So Bunyan writes, the parlor is the heart of man that was never declared holy by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. The man with the broom is the law, but the gracious young lady who brought water and sprinkled the room is the gospel. As the man began to sweep, the dust filled the room. It became more difficult to clean, and you almost choked to death. You can see the law can both discover and condemn sin, but it has no power to control it. I want to read that one more time. You can see that the law can both discover and condemn sin, but has no power to control it, and that leads us to grace. Grace has a power that, that just doesn't compare to other things. It is God-given, it's beautiful, and it, it flat-out changes lives. And there's no doubt of the grace in this passage when the woman was told by Jesus that she was not condemned. In fact, I want to go back and read 9 through 11 one more time before we move forward. It says, When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It is interesting if you look how she addresses Jesus. Even the Greek text uses the root word kyrios, which means Lord. Whereas when the Pharisees and the scribes originally address him, they address him as teacher or rabbi. And uh, she knew. She knew that, that he was the Lord. And, and how much sweeter is a life lived when you've experienced this type of grace? I've thought about it this way. You know, when, you, when you go out to eat and you know your meal is already paid for, you seem to be less judgmental of the quality of the food, the service, the condition of the restaurant. Because um, at the end, you know, you're not paying for it. And, and I think grace um, can, really, can really fit the same way here. When we, when we go through life knowing that we're saved, knowing we're not going to get what we deserve, I think it makes life so much sweeter. We're less judgmental toward others because we know that we should be condemned, but due to our gift of salvation, we're not going to be. Bunyan writes again in his book, he says, a true work of grace in the heart is easily recognized by the person that has it or by others observing him. And, you know, and scripture tells us this as well. You know, the, the verse after the vo most famous verse in the Bible, John three seventeen, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, um, contrary to how this passage gets used many times, uh, the sin in this case, um, her sin rather, is not ignored. It's both recognized and addressed. And I've seen this passage used many times to state that we shouldn't confront sin. 
Uh, in this verse, Jesus definitely does not ignore her sin. In fact, I believe he recognizes it quite clearly. And like I said, the interpretation here many times is done incorrectly, as many suggest that, no, you're not, you were not called to judge sin, and, and that's, that's not the case. Uh, we're, we are called to call out sin among believers, and, and we're called to not be quiet about it. But we're called to do so with grace and with compassion. Look in Galatians 6, 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we're to restore the person gently. Yet it doesn't say that we should do nothing. This theme is located throughout the Bible, and it shows that the God we serve is gracious and forgiving to those who believe in him. Going back to the text, especially in, in verse 11, I can't help but agree that our Lord takes the posture of kneeling in this case to, to take the shame from the woman. Though I, you can't know for sure, but when he spoke to them, he didn't try to intimidate them. and you know, He didn't try to threaten them. And in fact, essentially he agreed that she could be executed, but just requested that the one without sin begin the process. And I believe this is how it's done. This is the grace and compassion that we're called to use. And ladies and gentlemen, this is our example. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Note the word all. He, it doesn't say, we're not told that some is profitable and some is merely supporting documentation. Nope, all is profitable. I read a, um, an op-ed by a guy named Peter Werner, and he references a situation um, decades ago um, about this conference that, that was going on, and experts from all over the world had gathered to discuss if any of the thing we anything that we believe as Christians was unique only to us. And it just so happened while they were talking, C.S. Lewis walked in and without thinking said, that's easy, it's grace. Werner goes on to say about grace, you don't sense hard edges, dogmatism, or self-righteous judgment from gracious people. There's a tenderness about them that opens doors that have previously been bolted shut. People who've been transformed by grace have a special place in their hearts for those living in the shadows of society. They're easily moved by stories of suffering and step into the breach to heal. And grace, properly understood, always produces gratitude. And this passage is no different. So let the grace and compassion that Jesus shows with this woman be our example. Let it, let it not be to cover sin or, or to ignore it, but to lovingly confront it with restoration being the goal. Um, in, in preparing for today, I, I read a sermon that it was entitled, Guilt, Gloating, and Grace. And this is how it ended, and it was so good, I chose not to paraphrase, but read straight from it. It says, let us not be self-righteous and unforgiving. Let us not criticize without love. Let us not judge without compassion. Let us not censor without understanding. Let us not condemn without sympathy. And let us not punish, punish without a desire for restoration. In this section, the hope in this passage is, is easy to identify. The hope that though we're sinners, Christ did not come to condemn us. And even in our moments of darkness, when we're filled with shame and disgust, we turn to him 
and we put our faith in him. And by our faith in him, we can be the recipients of the greatest, most beautiful gift, which is our salvation. Though we're brought into the ring in front of our accusers, their stones in hand, destined for death, we get to walk away. We walk away with the hope that one day we'll join our creator in a new world, one free of sin and death, and one where we will live in perfect love with him. And that is the hope that only he can provide. The Christian life is tough, and I think most of us would agree, but I think the hardest part of it, the toughest part comes down to trust. Do we trust that we have a gospel so full of mercy, so incredibly beautiful, so big? Do we trust that our gospel is so sweet that we're forgiven, that people like us are truly forgiven? Because church, we do. In closing, this passage is more than a story of a woman confronted in her sin. This passage shows us how to live a life that glorifies him. And while recognizing that we're all sinners, it shows us how to lovingly confront it. We can confront this in ourselves and we can confront it in others. Though wrong, it shows us the way many of us though do it, just like the Pharisees, loud, angry, with shame and guilt being the goal, yet it beautifully shows us the way it should be done, with Christ as the example. And by following the example that he set for us, we can both recognize sin, confront it with grace and compassion, and give the hope that leads to restoration. You know, in addressing this pa passage, John Piper stated the most remarkable point of this story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses, changes its appointed punishment, and reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. So as you, as you leave today, know this. You have sinned and you are guilty, but for those of you here who have put your faith in him, you walk today free through the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today and thank you for this time together and thank you for helping us to learn your word. Father, we ask that you help us focus on the hope that you give us. And for, for those times, Father, that we're brought into the ring and surrounded by our accusers, let us remember who you are and what you've done. Father, there is so much today going on that we don't understand, that confuses us, that makes us, that, that scares us, Father. But in times like that, Father, let us remember what we do know, which is you, and we know who you are and what you've done for us.